suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Moran, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today, we introduce The Business of Business is Sales, Podcast Zero, Part two. And our last words on our podcast, Zero Part One, mentioned the beekeeping story, which we believe is a relevant tale to tell. But teaser alert, it won't be shared in this podcast, not today, because we have far more fundamental things in mind we think we ought to share as we get this series rolling. Still introductory in nature, but worth sharing nevertheless. Foundational principles on which to build. We'll tell you why. If you establish yourself properly, right out of the chute, you don't have to know all about your competitors. But you'll soon find out that they will know who you are. And while you're busy focusing on thinking how to best resolve client problems, satisfy their needs and wants, desires, these so-called competitors of yours, you'll soon find out that they're thinking about you instead of thinking about the customer. And these so-called competitors, and, and by the way, you really will have none if you do things properly, as you can't be compared to anybody else. All these competitors will be thinking about what you're going to be doing next while you'll be laser beam focused on the client. Your competitors will be looking sideways at you. This is a bad place to be. This is a bad view. And as I say this, a few things come to my mind right at this moment. So I think I should share them as we get rolling. You really don't have competitors in truth. For you will become so different in style, approach, knowledge, and ability that you won't be a commodity available for comparison. There is no comparison to you. You'll be establishing also the criteria, the very criteria by which clients will be making their purchase, their investment decisions. Others, you know, those alleged competitors of yours, will be so very busy, forced into chasing you around. It's a, it's a scary, really scary position to be in for them, not you. You should recognize you, in this world, you deal or you'll be dealt to. It's your call. And, and I would just say that the rule ought to be, he who hath the gold makes the rules. Decide now that you will be the one with the gold. Somebody's got to have it, so why not you? And, and by, the, by the time the, the others, those competitors, the alleged competitors, by, they fi- by the time they finally find out 
where you are, what you're doing, where you've been, you'll be long gone. You'll be somewhere else doing something else. I, and it reminds me of, of the English writer, uh, Rudyard Kipling, the 19th century, the famed English author, who, who, who rather, and I must admit, rather shamelessly stated, they copied all they could copy, but they couldn't copy my mind. So I left them wailing and gnashing their teeth a year and a half behind. That is the objective. Be ahead of everybody else. I mean, the Beatles. The Beatles were the Beatles. And as John Lennon once said to the press, I mean, albeit he was very pissed off at the moment he said it, but he said, no one is going to tell us, the Beatles, when it's over. We'll tell you when it's over. <laughs> and, so, and so they did. There, no competitor, no competitive band put the Beatles out of business. They had no competitors. They were the Beatles. They changed the world. Cocky? Yeah. Um, confident? Yes. Arrogant? Maybe. Well, sure. But he was John Lennon. And always remember this. While they were very busy creating the music that defined a generation, never forget that John Lennon and Paul McCartney sold stuff. They sold their product. 275 million albums to date. They sold lots of stuff. Yeah, they made music. They were also in the business of making product and selling it. They created music that was important to them personally. Yeah, they did. And it was un unlike anybody before them. And they, they had no competitors. They were the Beatles, for God's sakes. But McCartney especially always kept one eye on the prize. That is, he was always thinking about the Beatles customers, those kids, principally young girls, whom bought those records. He never stopped thinking about what the product was that would sell. And they understood the business they were in. And it's called the business of being in the production of customer delight. That's what they did. They delighted their customers. You know, you have no, no sales, no fans, no studio time. There's no records. There's no money. The Beatles, the Beatles would, have, would have been playing forever in, in those seedy strip clubs in Hamburg, Germany for beer money and sleeping in bug-infested rooms, you know, at the back of the bar. They, they had to get real good at making music, products that would sell, that customers wanted to buy and indeed bought. By the way, 5,351 miles away from, the, from London and the Beatles in the late 1960s, actually around 1969 or so, and the early 1970s, there formed a band in San Francisco whose music over a three-year period of time made them, at that moment, the most popular 
band in the world. I'm speaking of Credence Clearwater Survival, CCR. It was truly the product of the creative brilliance, the genius of a malcontent, but a genius nevertheless, John Fogarty and CCR. And they carved out a unique place in a very crowded music market. They had a voice and a, a sound that was uniquely their own. They copied no one. They were CCR. A unique sound, a unique product, world-class professional talent. Now, their ultimate demise resulted when they, they lost focus on the product. They lost pro focus on their clientele and satisfying their needs and wants. And it, they, they replaced these things with internal disputes and antagonisms between the band members, but even John Fogarty and his older brother, Tom. And, and with eyes off the prize, guess what? CCR and its business completely collapsed and was never revived. And, and so this podcast series that we are only in the process of introducing, this is a general introductory commentary that we're offering here. Oh, but over time, we hope that the advice that we will offer on the business of, bill, of business, the selling of stuff to a client base is founded on the single proposition. That, and that premise is that the, the, the only moral fund foundation upon which a sale can ever be made is that you are, in fact, providing a superior product or service that results in client delight. No one owes you anything. You better be good. You better be really good. Because the benefits of being really good, you know, excellent, great, fabulous, spectacular, those rewards are non-linear in nature relative to average performance. And the financial, the aesthetic, and the personal rewards of proving to be excellent in whatever field of endeavor you choose to enter are orders of magnitude greater than just being okay, than just being average at whatever you do. And we're going to prove over time that the marginal differential, the Delta, if you would, between excellence and being average can be calculated. And the delta between excellence and mediocrity is about 3 to 4%. It's hard to measure, but we're going to give you some statistics later on to show that it is true in almost all fields of endeavor. And that 3 to 4%, what does it mean? Well, it means, it means everything, everything. That difference is what it's all about. And the rewards of excellence will yield you many personal returns, including financial rewards that are exponentially greater than average returns available to average performers in the business. Being three, four, five percent better than average won't mean you make three, four, five percent more money. It'll be Orders of magnitude of differential. A hundred times as much, perhaps. So 
over time, we'll provide you with statistics to prove this. But for now, we just ask, just accept that this is, this is true. And, and with that, I want to make three preliminary comments that I think are in order. The, the sales methodology, the process of going about your business, whatever that business may be, um, an approach to, to clientele that will be unveiled here over the course of time um, via these podcasts will not be valid, re- repeat, will not be valid in the following circumstances. In other words, well, let me explain. If you are selling a completely uh, selling a completely truly commoditized product, a product that is indistinguishable from many companies' product or services or offerings, I, I don't I don't know, and I don't know that JS knows how you sell such a product or service. And we can provide no guidance, no value, no help. It's a complete commodity, um, and. If providing a product or service that's indistinguishable from the competitors, I would guess that that means you're going to sell it at the lowest possible uh, cost. And that is that is the most valuable variable in such a sale. And perhaps maybe it's the only variable. And we cannot assist you in that process. We have no experience, no insights on how this kind of opportunity might be enhanced by anything that we have to say. Uh, uh, we just don't understand that business. Uh, and one must know that we have nothing to offer. So if it's a commodity, it's a low-priced, lowest-cost sale, we can't help you. Number three, though, if the product is not important to the client, it's just mundane, little thought is given to or or value seen in the purchase of that of this product or service. I, I, again, we can't offer any assistance. We don't even know how to sell such stuff. And 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 if I guess the truth be told, in all candor, um, uh, during the course of my career, um, I, I I would have had little interest in even attempting to sell products or services that warranted so little value or enjoyment to me as the salesman or the customer as the purchaser. I don't even know why I'd want to be in that kind of business. So if it's unimportant, we can't help you there either. Um, and I, I guess I want to expand this. One more thing. Four. Point four. If the ultimate purchaser of your product has moral deficiencies, is untrustworthy, or appears to be so, I can help you with this simple piece of advice. Avoid dealing with these kind of people. And, and, and there do exist more than a fair number of these kind of people out there whom for reasons that we'll never understand, if they're not outright crooks yet, they're going to be. Avoid them. Shady people just get shadier with the passage of time. The older they get, the worse they get. They become more of themselves over time, not less. So people with limited commitment to the truth, we'll call it, are lacking in and deficient in honesty and fair dealing. Um, They become less so under pressure of time and age and the metastasizing consequences of a less than truthful existence and business dealings. 
my suggestion? No, no, it is my total recommendation. Avoid them. Avoid them at all costs. Moving on. This um, series will be based on the fundamental imperative that one really does need to be very, very good at what he or she chooses to do. I mean, forget the Trump nonsense about the art of the deal. He never even wrote a single line of that book anyway. No, the art of the deal is actually about becoming excellent in providing advice and counsel around the product or services uh, you sell. You're in the business of making your client's business more efficient, adding to their bottom line, adding to their return on equity, and helping them achieve their goals. You put your client's interests first, not yours. You put your client interests first, and in doing so, you're going to find out your own bottom line will be maximized. You get all narcissistic and think only of yourself, you're going to wind up with very, very little. Altruism in the form of satisfying the other guys, the client's interests first and always first, will be self-serving in the most positive sense at the end of the day. You know, I used to laugh in meetings with Goldman Sachs, who was a client of mine, the execs, when I'd, when I'd joke and saying, you know, I don't want all of your money now. I just want all of it over time. And of course, we just get a little chuckle. In a related sense, in my first meeting after winning the GE account, and GE was a big deal at the time, given that, um, at that at that moment I won that account in 1988, GE had the highest market capitalization of any company on planet Earth under Jack Welch. And the treasurer of GE congratulated me on winning their account. Then um, he said, and, I, and well, let me just tell you. Then he said, um, they look forward to the day they could fire my ass. I repeat, he said he looked forward to the day they could fire my ass. I, I have to tell you, I was rather shocked by this. And, and I had asked him, why would you say such a thing? And he had responded to me, well, you got to think about it from our perspective. We're the client. So you have to think about it from GE's perspective. We hired you because we think you are great. You might be the best in the business. That's what we're counting on. And we hope you will be the best in the business. But if we should find someone better than you, you're going to be fired. But then we'll have found someone for us that's better than you. From our perspective, that'll be great. Your job, Joe, make sure you never get fired. And you know, I, I got to tell you, I mean, it was crude, but it was, it was a very interesting perspective. And guess what? Over time, I came to agree with it. I, I want, by the way, I handled the GE account for 13 years. And then I retired. So GE never did fire me. So I, so I, I have concluded, uh, shamelessly perhaps, that I was very good. Because they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't fire me. So they didn't find anybody better. Now, a slight swerve. I want to talk about Van Gogh. Yeah, the painter guy with all those mental problems. He was, as we will agree, a, an artist of renown. Tortured but talented. You know, that Terry Billita thing I've mentioned in the past. But 
His artwork did not sell while he was alive. Now, fortunately for Van Gogh, his brother Theo, his brother supported him, paid his bills. The only way Vincent got by was that he had a brother that supported him. Theo understood, fortunately, the value of business. He paid Vincent so Vincent could pay his bills and pursue his art. So the point, of course, is, so unless someone out there is going to carry you, perhaps you should recognize that whatever business you think you are in, you are in the business of the business of selling stuff to clients, whomever they might be. You might be an artist. You might manufacture the paint an artist uses. Maybe you produce paintbrushes the artist uses. Maybe you even make the canvases upon which the artist paints his picture with those brushes. You might be the banker who finances all of these companies. But at the end of the day, if you don't sell stuff valued by your client, you will not be in business. This is the business of the business of which we shall be speaking over time. And unlike Dr. Tim Leary, you know, the, the, the acid king, uh, whose, whose tagline back in the 1960s was, turn on, tune in, drop out. Our tagline is going to be, don't drop out. Please don't drop out. Tune in again and get turned on. So we hope, we hope you've enjoyed the introduction to what we hope will be a long series devoted to the idea that the business of business is sales. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Goodbye and thank you.